Hi, I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have found a distinct perspective on time. Welcome to episode 53 of Time Sensitive. Today, Spencer's in conversation with the chef Daniel Hume of New York's 11 Madison Park. What'd you guys get into? So we talked about his switch to a plant-based menu, which is an extraordinary switch for a number of reasons. To come out of a pandemic, making this kind of a statement, having been the number one restaurant in the world, having been known for serving foie gras and duck, having the platform that Daniel has, to do that, I think, is is sending a lot of messages that will ripple outside of the restaurant world and are rippling outside of the restaurant world. Uh, so we got into that and, and we talked about the menu specifically a little bit, uh, which you and I got to experience recently, uh, was extraordinary. And we talked about time, of course. Time is an ingredient for Daniel. He describes it as his most luxurious ingredient. I'm not surprised. And uh, <laughs> by any chance, did you... Did you ask him about Pete Wells' review in the, in the Times? <laughs> I did. And he has a really eloquent reply. Uh, I'm not going to say more than that here, but I, I will say that that review, in my opinion, was quite unfair, kind of went over all over the place and was over the top. It was definitely harking back to the mean review he once wrote of Guy Fieri's restaurant in Times Square. I think that at the end of the day, Daniel is a really, really talented chef with a lot of big ideas. He's pushing things out of the norm. And when you push, you're bound to have some critics. Looking forward to hearing his response to it. And now here's Spencer and Daniel. Today in the studio is the chef, Daniel Hume of 11 Madison Park. Welcome, Daniel. Good to see you, Spencer. So let's begin with your shift to a meatless plant-based menu. You've spoken a bit recently about how time is almost a new ingredient. And so I was hoping you could go more in depth into your thinking around time in relationship to cooking and food and how this new shift at 11 Madison Park plays into that? Well, I think I need to start even going back a little bit further. And it's really the moment of the pandemic. You know, when the pandemic hit, restaurants shut down pretty much immediately. Mm -hmm. And I think the world was shocked how fragile the restaurant industry truly is. It was at first really challenging because our restaurant and our people is that's our family. We spend hours and hours, days and days and years and years with them. Many of our team come from all kinds of places around mm -hmm. the world. So when the pandemic hit pretty much overnight, that team broke apart. Mm -hmm. And even now, a year and a half later, um, that team has, has never come back together fully the way it was. So I think in the first few weeks of the pandemic, it was just heartbreaking to let people go, see people leave, move away, 
and not knowing what the future was for restaurants. I'm a co-founder of an organization called Rethink Food, and um, we prepare meals for food insecure New Yorkers. I made the decision right in the beginning of the pandemic to turn 11 Madison Park into a uh, community kitchen mm. and starting producing meals in a professional kitchen, which was um, really eye-opening and it was a weird time. It was a weird time to think about luxury. It was weird to think about how much we used to obsess over food and now seeing a whole different side of New York of, of people having no food. Mm. And as you know, food insecurity doubled uh, in New York City in the beginning of the pandemic, which, you know, it went from 1 million to 2 million food insecure people out of 8 million. Mm. So it's a massive percentage of New York City. And even back further, our restaurant was named number one in the world in 2017. And that was a lifetime goal. But when it happened, it also kind of felt empty a bit. Mm -hmm. And even at my age, young, you know, 45 years old, I wasn't exactly sure um, how my next 25 years of career are going to look like since I felt like I almost achieved everything. So I, I was kind of looking uh, for a new meaning. Mm. So during the pandemic, I even thought about, oh, maybe the chapter of fine dining is closed. That was a wonderful chapter. We brought it to the top. And maybe now my involvement with food becomes different. I realized the power of um, food as a language. Mm. I also thought about other issues on the planet that food is part of it. And um, it's not just food insecurity, but it's the way we farm and the way we raise cattle. And obviously that leads a big part to global warming and obviously waste, sustainability in general. Food has a lot of power in that sense. And I also realized that 11 Madison Park as a platform had a lot of power. And me as a chef mm. had a lot of power. So I committed that if we reopen 11 Madison Park, that we will go forward with a fully plant-based menu. And this is not to say, you know, we're anti-meat, but it is to say we're pro-planet. Mm -hmm. And if this is where we're going and where we need to go, I think creativity um, should go towards that. Mm. And then the next step was sort of like, okay, what is luxury? Because 11 Madison Park is a luxurious restaurant that it's expensive to dine in. And I started thinking about, you know, the luxury ingredients that we used to use. Um, one obvious one is caviar. Right. <laughs> And for me as an expert in food, I actually have the responsibility to think about it. And there is nothing luxurious about mm. caviar at all. It's not rare. It comes from far. It's not even delicious when you compare it 
to what it once was. Mm -hmm. It's a broken idea. It's an old idea. And so to your question about time, mm -hmm. for me, like something truly luxurious is something that I can't get anywhere. Something that's truly unique that only happens in this place. Mm. And this is the, the time of producing a dish, the time of thinking about a recipe, the time it grows to make something, to ferment something. Um, so we started working with these uh, Zen Buddhist monks who practice uh, shojin cuisine. And when we worked through the whole year of the pandemic on the R&D for this menu, I always thought about time as a new ingredient mm. and as the most luxurious ingredient. Mm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about these Buddhist monks. It's pretty interesting, the history of their cuisine, but also how they think about time in the process, in the making, uh, in the grinding. As you can imagine, it's a sort of a Buddhistic approach and mm -hmm. it's the act of, of cooking, of preparing the meal that's very much part of it. It's sort of like ceremonial. And uh, interestingly, it's the, the Buddhist monks that, that have been practicing for the longest are the ones actually cooking. Mm. Um, so it's in high regard cuisine. And obviously in these temples, they also grow their own food very carefully. One thing that happens every single day is grinding the sesame. There are uh, two types of ways that this is done. One, one is where the sesame gets soaked in water overnight. And then that gets ground for like an hour sitting on your knees and uh, grinding that sesame by hand. That creates this most incredible, luscious uh, sesame milk to make all kinds of things. But sesame tofu, for example. And then... Uh, the same thing happens with toasted sesame seeds and it gets ground into this most incredible uh, paste, sort of like the most incredible tahini you've ever had. And and they always said, they said, well, when you reopen the restaurant, you should have the guests grind the sesame for an hour before <laughs> they start eating. And uh, clearly we didn't do that. I don't think our guests would be very happy about it. But just by sitting for an hour on your knees, mm -hmm. and by the way, it's painful to mm -hmm. sit on your knees for an hour, and uh, your legs fall asleep and it hurts and you're grinding and also even just moving your arms for an hour is exhausting. But it puts you into a very different mindset. And so this happens every day in the morning before you even go to the kitchen. Mm. But after that, process you, your mind is in a different place mm. and in the kitchen itself there are no machines nothing electric it's all just uh done by hand with knives on fire um that's how it's been cooked mm. the traditional process the on your knees process it makes me think a little bit of this passion you describe there's actually a word in german for it leidenschaft which is like almost hurting for your passion. You're so passionate for this thing that you're willing to endure discomfort and great pain and go to great lengths to achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. I think that's very accurate. <laughs> and so I kind of love that 
you now have these Buddhist approaches paired with a more Swiss-German approach, the Leidenschaft approach. Yeah. I mean, that's just what it is, right? Like, if you want to really achieve something great, it's much more than a hobby. It it requires you to be all in mm. with your entire being. And that's what makes the result so so wonderful and so satisfying if you actually had to endure some some <laughs> suffering along the way. That's just how it is. <laughs> I was wondering, you know, this shift to plant-based cooking and running a plant-based kitchen, has, has time become of greater concern to you without meat and fish in the picture? How does plant-based cooking shift what happens in the kitchen and the time it takes to prepare and make, cook? I think it's worth pointing out that you're now out of the 135 Michelin three-star restaurants on earth. The, n- not a single one is vegan. So you're the only plant-based Michelin star restaurant at that level. You know, in a way, it was just a regular way of creating. When we had this idea about going plant-based, it it was just sort of my normal approach. Like Mm -hmm. when I created in the past, it's always sort of like the experience you've had plus the moment you're in leads you to create a certain way. And um, I think the pandemic made us pause. I sort of thought about being in the kitchen and seeing ingredients arrive in our back door. And in 30 years, what these ingredients were in some cases, and, and what the, how these ingredients changed was, um, was shocking. Mm-hmm. Like certain products are not available anymore. Certain fish used to be wild and like, you know, Abundant. 20 kilo big. And now they're like two pounds and they're farm raised. And the way the taste has changed of some of these things. This is something, I'm, I'm no expert in the global food system, but I am an expert in the kitchen that I am every day and I see how what we're getting um, has changed. So with that experience, the pause of the pandemic, I felt very strongly that I wanted to cook with plants. And um, when we made this announcement, I was humbled and, and shocked, quite frankly, by the global response. I'm not sure if there's been a food story as big in my lifetime where literally every paper in the world put it on the cover Mm. that we're going plant-based. And I wasn't even knowing that I would step on this huge stage and now represent this whole movement. Mm -hmm. And I have to say that in a lot of ways, um, it's overwhelming because this was just a creative approach to continue the story of 11 Madison Park. Mm-hmm. But now it's obviously become a lot more and um, I'm excited about it. But I also know there's so much I don't know. And we've been focused on creativity and cooking and now 
we have to focus on so much more. So we need to look at our team and, and bring people on board who actually know a lot about these issues. Mm-hmm. We're just kind of um, taking it all in and trying to dig really deep. And, and uh, we're definitely going even deeper on this, uh, you know, plant-based movement. We're, we're really enjoying it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never felt so liberated cooking as I do right now. Time in the seasons is another subject I wanted to mention. We were talking about Buddhist monks, but in Japan, of course, they have many more seasons than just four. You've talked about how you've come to appreciate how New York State itself has these really distinct seasons, although that's changing with with the climate crisis around us. But how important this cycle of time is and these seasons. And now that your cooking is plant-based, I imagine that that impacts how you're thinking about time and the seasons all the more. Could you speak to that? Yeah, we started a farm upstate, which has been just so incredible. Being able to affect recipes even before the ingredient comes to your door Mm is amazing. Like we're thinking about now, like eight months in advance, what are we going to serve next fall or, or, or next summer? Because some of these things need to go in the ground and we need to know what kind of seeds we want to use mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So that's been really exciting. So you're absolutely right. Now, since the vegetable is the main focus on a dish, we want to really get them at its most perfect peak. And you have to therefore understand the seasons much more. It could be that a certain type of, you know, zucchini is like amazing in May, but then another type of zucchini is amazing in June or July. Um, So even within one ingredient, Mm -hmm. it actually changes. Even with tomatoes, like in the early season, we actually used certain types of tomatoes and then we we started using other types of tomatoes. Climate change has has changed the seasons when they are, but but there are still these, you know, like you say in Japan, like the fifty two seasons, or like every week is kind of a different season, and we're definitely seeing that. And uh, being in talks with with a farmer on a daily basis makes you really understand and also appreciate that a lot more. Mm. I wanted to mention this this I Love New York book you did in 2013 where you spent weeks or months traveling around all these different farmers, local farmers in the region. What did you learn through doing that? I mean, that book you go through, it's like an ABCs of vegetables, apples, asparagus, beans, beef, beer, beets. <laughs> and, and you're visiting these incredible farms like Satter Farms in the North Fork or Berber's Farm near Stamford, New York. And tell me about that. That was a really beautiful process. A year before I was in Paris and I, I, it was like springtime and every restaurant was celebrating certain asparagus and they were naming you exactly from what town they were grown in and strawberries, asparagus, artichokes. Um, people were just so hyper aware of where they were from and they were celebrated in such way. You know, even not chefs knew about some of these things. And at that point, I've lived in New York for maybe six or seven years and I was really blown away by the bounty of 
the northeast that we're in, like from, you know, around the Atlantic Ocean, like one of the greatest waters for seafood. You know, people think of Manhattan as like this concrete jungle, but, you know, 20 minutes out, you're pretty much hitting farmland. And then as far as Canada, pretty much in any direction. So I was like, why do we not celebrate these amazing TriStar strawberries the way they celebrate them in France. I felt the need to uplift the farmers and to bringing more attention to what they are doing because, mm. um, yes, we are much younger than in Europe. And so uh, in a way we're behind, but in a way that's also really incredibly exciting. From the time we wrote this book, to now when you go to the green market, um, it's just unbelievable. You feel like you're in a market in the Provence. Like it's unbelievable, the variety of plums and tomatoes and zucchinis and cucumbers. I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's wonderful. And so, um, yeah, I wrote this book, I Love New York, and maybe it took sort of a European lens to kind of say, I think Americans often have a little bit of chip on their shoulder, when they talk about Europe and food. Um, and for a European to be here and saying, hey, we don't need to have a chip on their shoulder. What we have here is is equally amazing and in some ways more amazing. Mm. So um, that was sort of uh, really paying attention to this incredible place, New York City. Yeah, and this is you know coming out of the late aughts when the sort of notion of local became talked about much more parodied. There's that classic Portlandia episode of like, do you know the name of the chicken? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're, we're going to have to go to the farm and see that. We'll come back to our table after. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when I think about your practice, I of course think about art and we're going to touch on that. But one thing that I think has become more central to your cooking over time is maybe to a certain extent, the sort of wabi-sabi Leonard Corrin idea and connected to that, the use and flavor of umami and how you sort of create an alchemy with umami in your cooking. Could you speak to that? Yeah, I think um, umami is sort of this flavor sensation that um, it took me a long time to fully understand. And I'm not saying that I'm 100% understanding it now, but I'm understanding it much more. What's amazing about umami is that while different to your other tastes, like sour or sweet or salty, for example, acidity, like when you have acidity in a dish, you usually want it to come from one source. Mm. You don't really want to have vinegar and lemon or like you don't really want to mix them one will overpower the other and that is true for other things too with sweetnesses and like it's it's usually one that's gonna mm. win but with umami it's different like umami you want to layer umami on top of umami because it's really making it come to life and you know one of the easiest example that probably everyone will understand is like a a spaghetti with tomato sauce. So like cooked down tomato has like that taste of umami. If you add a little bit of anchovies 
into that sauce when you're sweating the onions uh, before you're adding the tomatoes, then that tomato sauce has like a whole other layer mm. to it. And then, of course, we eat spaghetti tomato sauce with a little bit of Parmesan cheese. And now that also has a lot of umami. So now it's even elevated even more. And so I think umami in a lot of ways touches you in a way sort of like comfort food does. When you actually look at a lot of the comfort food dishes, it's really the umami that's really touching you like this. And so I think when you have precious food like you can have at 11 Madison Park where everything is placed with perfect precision, I think it's really nice that when you're eating it, that you get sort of this comfort food feeling because that actually makes it approachable. Mm. And uh, of course, when you take away meat and fish, then I think it becomes even more crucial. So you're not just eating these precious vegetables without any like sort of backbone. Mm. Well, it's interesting too, because when I think of umami, I think even if it's not literally texture, it's a layer. It's like painting. It's... I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously thinking of, and you've talked about him quite a bit, Robert Ryman. And and there's this really funny line where I, I was reading that the artist Paul McCarthy once said, Daniel, I feel like I'm eating Robert Ryman. <laughs> How do you think about Ryman and umami in that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sure. I think there is a lot of truth to that, right? Like for me, what's always been so inspiring um, about minimal art was always how can you say so much by doing so little and i think for me the greatest uh, example was always fontana mm. um you know where he slices into this white canvas that is true for all great minimal artists their gesture is just really strong it just has to be really strong to be meaningful so it was always a dream of mine to cook in this way, to to say a lot by doing little. But um, it takes years of practice and your craft has to be elevated to such a, a level that it's very few people can actually achieve it. Mm -hmm. I mean, resonant cooking, if we can call it that, reminds me of resonant art, resonant architecture. What you feel when you walk into... Yeah. The Pantheon in Rome. I think that is a really good... I never thought about this, but I think you're making a really good point. Yeah. Mm. There's, a, of course, a huge time commitment to fine dining and to, to what you're doing. And with fine dining, you sit down for what effectively is a performance. The thing about the performative element, of course, is that there's a sort of magic that's created. I saw David Byrne on Broadway last night, and it's like the feeling you get as the performance unfolds. I think for me, I felt myself in a very unique position when I started thinking about this idea of going plant-based and, of course, people saying like, wow, are people going to pay this kind of money for a plant-based meal. And for me, it was always like, well, 
we've never sold food. We've always sold a performance, an experience, sort of like a Broadway show. And um, that's why I felt confident that people would actually pay this mm. because people will understand they're not paying for food on a plate. They're paying for a performance or an experience. And in that way, there aren't that many restaurants in the world who actually are in this position. And my hope is that people will appreciate vegetables a lot more and will be willing to pay more for it because right now it's really difficult even if a chef really believes that this is the way forward if you have to pay your staff and your rent especially in a place like new york city it's very hard to have a plant-based restaurant because you there's only so much you can charge for like a main course of carrots right so uh, if we can actually change what luxury means, what high quality means, what people are going to be willing to pay for, I think then that could make a big difference. Mm. And, you know, I think there's sometimes I get criticized about, well, does it really matter what 11 Madison Park does? It's so rarefied. Most people can never, you know, even go there or eat there or experience it. And... um you know, I do think it does matter because I do think the world is watching and hopefully some of the work we're doing can trickle down. It's a little bit like, you know, in the car industry, you know, Toyota Prius, when it first came out, it was like uh, just so genius and so groundbreaking. But not sexy. Uh, but not sexy. <laughs> and then Tesla came and sort of made it sexy, made it luxurious. Not many people can afford a Tesla, but now it has really trickled down. Mm -hmm. So in a way, when I looked at that, I thought, oh, maybe this kind of groundbreaking change needs to happen in, on the luxury mm -hmm. level that it will trickle down. That's yeah. my hope. Well, and I think it, it goes back to the, the whole concept and conversation around audience. Who, who are you making it for? And the next generation or the generations coming up, I don't think they're going to be so interested in the traditional white tablecloth restaurant. I don't think they're going to be that interested in foie gras or duck. I think they're going to be a lot more interested in what it means to experience a meal that's thoughtfully produced from A to B and concerned with the planet. You know, it's been really interesting the way our audience has, has shifted. Um, our guests are a lot younger. Our guests are a lot more diverse. And, um, you know, it's just wonderful. Like, I feel like we're really seeing the generation that's going to change this planet eating in our restaurant. You know, I am very proud of what we did before. I grew up in Switzerland. I moved through the, you know, classic French cuisine. I wish the world wasn't changing. And I wish we could cook with these ingredients that I love to cook with forever. Mm -hmm. But it's just not a reality. Mm -hmm. And, um, so if we have creativity, we know so much about food, 
yeah, we're just exciting to apply it to where the world is heading and making that more magical and more delicious. I just had a thought come into my head. You know, in many ways, you're cooking for the 1%. And within the 1%, they're very powerful people, people who move culture, who can put their money towards initiatives, toward bettering the planet. What role can food play in that? Like, how do you think your plant-based cooking might actually shift people's perspectives beyond just the food on their plate? I mean, I know it's happening. People who have come through the restaurant, I know it has changed how they think about eating. Maybe they don't need to eat meat every single day. But then also it has actually changed where people are putting their money towards. Like, I mean, it's even before us, but it's exploding the whole plant-based ice creams and yogurts and milks and meat substitutions. I mean, it's just like exploding mm -hmm. since our announcement of this. Other big chefs have sort of announced that they're going to dabble into some more plant-based. I mean, Alain Ducasse has announced he's opening a vegetarian restaurant. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most sort of traditional French chefs. You know, the, the Met Ball was plant-based. So I, I think... I mean, we're in this moment where, where change is, is truly happening. And I think everyone who is sort of like putting their energy towards that, it will enable others to, to go in as well. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's a massive uh, moment right now and things are changing. Yeah. When it makes me think of how different creative practitioners are kind of speaking to each other on this level, our friend Gabriella Hurst, who actually was a guest on this podcast, she has an approach to fashion that I think is actually quite analogous in many ways to what you're doing at 11 Madison Park. When we talk about art and performance or paintings and all kinds of stuff, in some ways, what fashion designers do is probably almost the closest to what chefs do because it's like four collections a year. We have four <laughs> seasons a year. You know, there's yeah. like artists can kind of paint you know, there's no deadline, but we actually have deadlines of like, it has to be ready by the beginning of spring or the beginning of summer. There are conversations about, obviously, what are the biggest contributors to global warming and, you know, depends what your source is, but the meat industry is very high up on that list. But what's unique about what we eat is, you know, our car industry will change, but it will probably take 30 or 40 more years, right? We're building windmills to create uh, different energy sources. Takes years. But we can change how we eat tomorrow. And that's why it's so powerful. It doesn't even matter if it's the biggest contributor to global warming or the second or the third, but it's the one that can be changed the fastest. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting to hear you talking about it in the context of energy, because I think we often forget food is energy, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's true. There's this whole thing around what you do that has to do a lot with storytelling. And I think on a certain level, myth making, and we'll, we'll get there. But I did want to bring up these pivotal moments in your life and work. 
when at 22 you were in a bicycle race and, and crashed, and then later at 25 you were in a car accident, you kind of push yourself to these extreme levels of success. And I think what you've done in sports, you've also, you know, done in life. How do you contend with when you're going like maybe too far? And do you view what you're doing right now? You know, the shift you just made is, is on some level, you're really pushing yourself to this edge. Do you think about it in, in those terms? <laughs> you know, I wish sometimes I was different because it's really hard to be on this path to constantly, you know, pushing sort of the envelope. And, and in some ways I've succeeded a long time ago, you know, with the restaurant and maybe we could have just kept doing the same thing over and over again. And like, you know, we've had three stars for like 12 years or something like that. And and then we decided now the menu needs to be all about New York, you know, before it was like more traditional and we succeeded with that. And then we said, now it needs to be all about New York. And and we sort of succeeded with that. And, and now we're on this new path and, you know, we're, we're climbing a, a different mountain. I don't know. I think it's sort of like mixed. In one way, I would love to have a little bit more of an easy path. Um, but inside of me, there is just this fire that's burning. And when I feel instincts, I cannot uh, not follow them. And it doesn't always make sense you know, when you think about it, but, but I just always have to stay true to, uh, what I feel in my heart. And, um, this is no different. I mean, this was a crazy idea. Like there's not anyone in my life who told me that this would be a good idea. Um, you know, coming out of the pandemic, having not had any income for a year and a half, creating a restaurant fully plant-based, something no one has ever done before. No one really uh, said, oh yeah, that's a brilliant idea. You should do it. <laughs> well, it definitely goes back to this, maybe this Leidenschaft, you know, <laughs> an appreciation for hurt. And I think sometimes we forget that. Of course, we can all hurt too much yeah. and, and need to pull back. But I think you've really found a lot of success in your journey through this understanding of Leidenschaft. And I think that there's a sort of myth-making that builds around that. And I'm curious how you view that personally. Like, what's the Daniel Hume myth-making perspective? I think today I, I just got to accept it. That's who I am. In the beginning, I wasn't so aware of it that I was constantly creating things and then breaking them down and creating new things. But eventually I'm like, okay, that's just, I have to accept it in some ways. There is a great quote by Helen Keller that I love. And uh, that sort of is with me every day. And, and, it, and it goes, life is a great adventure or nothing at all. So in a way, like if I think about life, sort of like the currency of life and 
you know, the more adventure you have, the richer you are, then I feel very much I'm on the right path, you know, because I, I don't like to be in this sort of status quo where everything just remains the same and every day is the same and like we're not really challenging our ideas I respect people who who do that and and there's nothing wrong but that's just not my personality and so we're here on this planet for a very short time we might as well make it interesting and make it an adventure I mean I faced bankruptcy a year ago after being like named one of the best chefs in the world i never saw that coming mm. but i sort of s just accepted it i'm like wow i get to experience that that's kind of cool you know like and, and i mean when, you met with bankruptcy lawyers this was yeah you know i was sitting in my apartment and i looked at some of my paintings and some of the stuff and i'm like i always said i'm not a materialistic person and I don't feel like I am. But that moment when I was sitting in the apartment and I looked sort of at everything and I'm like, wow, this might all go away. Mm. And some of it did. Um, and having that experience put it into a whole new perspective. And it wasn't comfortable uh, to be in that position, but it was beyond liberating. And today I'm so grateful to have had that experience because I got to the place where I had no choice than to say I'm not a materialistic person because maybe there was no materialistic things in my life left. So that I think also liberated me to make this decision. Mm. I don't think today, now that the restaurant is back in action and I see how much we need, the income and the guest, and I don't think... I would have the courage to go plant-based at this stage. Like, I, I'm so happy I did it, but it took this, like... Window of time. Window of time. Mm. So the, if the pandemic had never happened, you don't think... I don't think I would have had the courage to do it. Mm. I think what the pandemic also revealed, you know, it revealed many cracks and chasms in our yeah. cultures and yeah. societies. But one one big key thing it revealed was how much the planet is in pain, yeah. how much the planet is hurting. And it, it strikes me that you've been in touch with your own personal physical hurt and sort of translated that into your creative practice. But for you, was the pandemic also a moment to really contemplate and think about the planet's hurt? A hundred percent. When you start kind of digging into and you don't need to dig that hard you can you know it's pretty obvious i mean now there are also so many documentaries on you know on the food system and when you start to go a little bit down that rabbit hole you realize that things are pretty bad and we do need to change our ways you know and people talk about sustainability a lot it's too fucking late to be sustainable we gotta take some much more drastic actions. Like I grew up in Switzerland and 40 years ago, we would, you know, recycle glass with different colors. In a yogurt, we would take like the lid that was aluminum, that goes in one place. And then the cardboard that goes around it, that goes in another place. Mm -hmm. And then the plastic cup that goes in the third place. 
we did that 40 years ago. Being here in New York, America, we're not doing any of that. Mm -mm. That is sustainability. We missed that. We didn't do it. And I don't think sustainability is necessarily going to fix our issues. So it has to be much more radical ideas. It has to be much more disruptive um, to to see real change. And, and um, I felt that I was in a position that I had the responsibility to put my work towards making a better planet. Mm. I want to go back to your childhood and start with art because, you know, we'll get into food. Your father was an architect and your, your mother was a painter and a spiritual creative person. When did art come into the picture for you? I know that there was a very formative experience at age nine visiting the Musée de l'Orangerie in Paris where you experienced Monet's water lilies. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, when I uh, my parents took me to Paris to see the water lilies, and the Lorangerie is this incredible uh, museum that was actually built for the paintings, and Monet was actually part of it, um, making sure that the light was a certain way. It's only natural light, and uh, and these paintings are sort of on these curved walls. Even now, this is a very sort of visceral experience but but as a kid you know being much smaller and these paintings being massive you're sort of uh, completely enveloped enveloped with the with these water lilies and it was the first time uh art made such a big impression on me i i remember i was standing in front of these water lilies and i just started being emotional and started having tears mm. and I couldn't I didn't know it was the first time I had tears and I didn't know if I was happy or if I was sad I was just emotional and um, from that moment on I knew that art really spoke to me I knew it was important I knew I was sensitive to to these kind of works and so yeah from then on even more than food, mm. I went through the world always looking for, you know, the museum or the artist show or the public sculpture or art has a, a really is, is the most important uh, part of my life. Mm. And, and sketching eventually became a part of your practice. Yeah, that's right. I, I sketch. I sketch today all my sort of uh, notebooks are filled with, um, you know, drawings. It's sort of like the, the first part of the creative process, even mm. like when you work with like oil sticks or so, it's also, it is like food in a way. And it is, has these colors and emotions. And so it's very tactile in that way, just like food is. Mm. I'm struck that you chose Brad Clopefield to design your space at 11 Madison Park because he similarly in his practice before he goes and actually creates architectural drawings for a building, he will sketch. Brad is just an incredible architect. I think he has incredible sensibility. He was really a guest of the restaurant and um, he always said, hey, if you ever change the restaurant, I would love to 
get the opportunity to to show you what I could do and when it was time to do so and and we got him involved um, and he made sort of his first proposal it was very clear that we had to not look any further um, he talks about sort of elemental architecture a lot and I think when we talk about minimal art versus elemental art also versus what our food is I would actually put our food more into the elemental category mm-hmm. and it's sort of like minimal you take away as much as possible elemental is more like there isn't anything that's not needed and there's a difference and mm-hmm. so I actually prefer to be in a space that is elemental than in a space that is minimal we are so fortunate to be in one of the most beautiful rooms uh, just the bones of the mm-hmm. rooms, the windows, the height of the ceiling. The way that Rita Ackerman sings when you walk yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. But we we didn't want to have anyone come in and sort of adding their designs. Uh, we wanted to really, it being architectural versus being design. And And Brad is just a master of, you know, stripping down the room to its core and then really letting that shine. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm very, very happy with how the restaurant uh, looks and feels. And the space, of course, is is filled with artworks. Saul Lewitt in, a, in the private dining room. You now have a Rashid Johnson in the space. Could you talk about how the art kind of embodies what it is you're doing in the kitchen? I think when we first talked about the renovation, in a way, I almost felt like it was so much pressure to figure out what to do with art because of my connection and my contacts. And uh, a few very close friends, you know, were sort of like talking to me about it. And I, I felt kind of overwhelmed. But I knew that we could have had access to probably, you know, we could have had a Picasso hanging on the wall. I'm sure someone would have gave it to us and and you know maybe use it as like a almost like a gallery and you know but I I didn't really was interested in that most of my friends are artists and I really wanted to create something that was of the moment site specific and um, something that was very personal and something that actually would not exist otherwise mm. and so I knew it had to be um, done in a more cohesive sort of way. And the main room has three artworks. It's sort of the same gesture within all of them, but approached in a different way. So we, we started with Daniel Turner, who's a very close friend of mine. And he did this incredible piece uh, at the Koenigs Gallery in Berlin that I saw. The Koenigs Gallery is this super brutalist Mm. concrete building and he took all that steel he ground the steel into sort of like steel wool into sort of a powder then he dissolved the powder into a liquid and he sprayed that sort of rust Mm. water of sort onto this concrete floor 
And so it was like this really beautiful rust stain that was uh, his sculpture. And that was the only work he did. And so when you went to go see the show, there was nothing on the wall and only the stain on the floor that you would actually walk on. And so for me, it was really powerful to have sort of a sculpture dissolved into the floor. Embedded. Embedded into yeah. the floor with mm. so much, uh, you know, history and tragic. And I mean, you could feel this energy. And so when I thought of 11 Madison Park and I thought of the kitchen that was there before and how many years, like 15 years, I've spent time cooking on that stove. Mm -hmm. I was excited to get a new stove, but it was bittersweet because I think that first stove was sort of where I, I became to be uh, me as a chef. And so we talked about using, you know, sort of melting the stove or, and we came up with the idea of uh, making a sculpture. And when Daniel presented the sculpture, it just was like this really minimal, beautiful block that reminded me of like a step. Mm. And me knowing the space, it actually needs steps. That's how the space is. And so we decided that we would use the sculpture um, as the step into the restaurant. So it was kind of like stepping over the past to be in the present. So that became the theme. And um, then Rita Ackerman, who is another very close friend, is, uh, well, just an incredible painter, but she did work uh, on chalkboards. And uh, for me, a chalkboard is about innovating, about teaching, about learning, but also very much about erasing and, and new beginnings. And um, there was a painting there before that was a, a landscape painting of like Madison Square Park. And uh, she redrew that painting on a chalkboard and erased it, sort of like erasing what was there for a new beginning. And then the third artist was Olympia Scary, who did this incredible uh, glass work where she used existing glass from the old restaurant that was facing east to west, and she placed it above uh, the front door so it was facing south to north, and she was taking this old material, creating the sculpture, and it was about changing directions. And then, um, you know, other people in the art world, like Sophia Lewitt, the daughter of Sol Lewitt, she was like, oh my God, my dad would have loved to be part of this. And um, what's amazing about the Soloit wall drawings are how they continue to have a life because mm. it's actually, you buy sort of the recipe for installing the artwork, that's what has the value. And then as the owner, you can install it anywhere you want. And uh, what I love about this is, well, number one, how it, how it continues to live on. But then also number two is how the actual object isn't that precious. Um, so we painted one of the walls uh, with one of those gorgeous wall drawings. And then just recently, Rashid Johnson, who is a very close friend, spent a lot of time together during the pandemic. He's been a guest on this podcast. Uh, too. Amazing. <laughs> and, um, you know, we just felt like 
we wanted to create this space, uh, our bar, that was sort of like where he, not just a painting on the wall, but where he like really takes over the bar with multiple paintings. And, you know, he painted on the ceiling and he uh, branded the rocks and uh, has like planters in the space, just uh, creating this space, one that we would love to hang out in. Mm. When did food come into the picture for you? I know your your mother was a great home cook, and you were at a young age already, you know, working on a, a cherry tree farm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Food, I was very lucky that I um, grew up in this really small town in Switzerland. I didn't even realize it growing up how how lucky I was that we had all of our ingredients from from farms and our milks from the farmer, you know, every day. And like, I didn't really had interest in food uh, growing up, but it was just very much part of the environment that I was in. You know, we, I mean, my mom cooked uh, every day. She baked all the bread and all the cakes and all the sweets. We never really went to a grocery store. And uh, we actually also didn't eat meat that often. We we did eat meat on the weekends. On Sunday, she always made a very special meal. Um, but there was this real appreciation for food. And when I got my first jobs, it was a logical thing to work on a farm because they were all around us. And um, yeah, I pursued a career as a cyclist and that's what I did. But food was always around and I always appreciated great food. I did have to help in the kitchen, but it was more of a chore than a, than a treat back then. But, you know, I washed greens or, you know, we even like walnuts or hazelnuts or like in the fall, like to make anything that she did, we, we had to open them. And like, so it was an amazing experience. And so... You rise up through some kitchens in Switzerland and eventually find yourself invited to come become a chef in California. Barely, from what I understand, even knowing how to speak much English and, yeah. you know, all of a sudden arriving in California and seeing the bounty that is Napa Valley and Chez Panisse and yeah. that whole culture... What was that like for you, that sort of, from an outsider's perspective, almost rapid rise? I mean, you were doing all this in your 20s after a, a run as a competitive cyclist, as you mentioned. I really came to America because of a heartbreak. I was uh, going through a breakup when I was like 25 years old of like my first, you know, big love. Who you fell in love with at 14? I did fell in love when I was 14 and we ended up being together for like 12 years. And it was this beautiful love and beautiful relationship. We have a daughter together and she's uh, wonderful. And, and uh, but we did ended up breaking up when I was 25 and I was just heartbroken. And um, I never been to America before. I had no idea. I knew nothing about it. But out of the blue, I got a phone call of someone who has a hotel in San Francisco. And he said, hey, I'm looking for a chef. Would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, I'm very interested. 
I can't wait to leave this place where everything reminds me of my lost love. And so, um, yeah, I took this opportunity to move to San Francisco and uh, it was just an incredible thing. One of the best things I've ever done. The bounty of food in California and here as well uh, was just uh, refreshed mm. in a way. And it felt like the perfect place to be in. Did learning about what Alice Waters was up to have, have a big impact on you and, and particularly your thinking now and what you're doing now? When I think of all the chefs around the world, obviously a few chefs have impacted me deeply. A lot of them have impacted the way I cook and the way I've been able to rise up in sort of like the traditional way. But today, uh, for me, one of the most impactful, influential chefs is Alice Waters. She inspires me more than any other chef. And it's because it's much bigger than just a restaurant. She stayed true to having one restaurant. That restaurant is beyond magical. She championed long before anyone else local food, know where your food is coming from. But then... You know, her mission became much larger with Edible Schoolyard and her contribution, what food can do as a language. And so I think during the pandemic, I thought a lot about her. I, I was lucky to travel with her. We were in Brazil together a few years back, and she's just one of the most incredibly mm -hmm. inspiring uh, humans out there. And um, yeah, I was lucky to when I moved to San Francisco to cross paths with her and sort of, you know, get to know her work and, and her. Mm. So you rise up there too. It goes extremely well. You, you end up getting a Michelin star. Eventually you're courted Danny Meyer and you become friends with Daniel Ballou. Daniel's another one of these chefs who's had such a profound impact on you, particularly, I think, even more so as a restaurateur than just a chef. Could you talk about that impact and how he, in a way, paved your, your way to New York for you? Yeah, Daniel Boulud was um, sort of the first person I really got to know in New York City before I even moved to New York City. I did a James Beard dinner like when I still worked in San Francisco and Daniel was just so generous and offered me his kitchen and his team and whatever I needed to be here in New York. And so, I mean, he's, he's a mentor. He became a very close friend. And uh, he was sort of my sounding board about making the decision to move here. And then when I eventually decided to move, Danielle was the one who shared all his contacts who gave me access to his chefs and his knowledge. And he also uh, started sending influential people to the restaurant and said, hey, there's this young kid who is doing something mm -hmm. different. And um, he has just been so incredibly uh, supportive and um, I'm, I'm eternally grateful uh, to him. His generosity is just 
boundless and it's it's towards me but it's towards our industry and it's towards uh, so many so um you know he is a huge inspiration still today and and what he did i think in in so many ways was help show you the the sort of matrix the framework that is the food world there are the awards there are the critics there and you early on got such positive reviews when you were in California. I think in many ways those reviews had a huge impact in propelling you to New York. I wanted to get into criticism because also the your childhood, your father was like kind of the ultimate critic from what I yeah. can understand. He, yeah. was, he was a very uh, discerning Swiss architect yeah. who had very high standards, standards yeah. and, and aspirations and, for and, me and exacting views on what was good and what wasn't yeah. I know you did cook a meal for him on his 40th birthday that was like a breakthrough and that he loved yes. and <laughs> that, that became like a bonding moment but also sort of a it was a breakthrough but not always a lasting one you know <laughs> he went back to his old self after that <laughs> well I think in some ways it's interesting you know, what your father probably taught you about criticism, which on the one hand is there's this constant desire. Your Every son seeks father's approval. Yeah. But the food world and, and the restaurant world is so cutthroat and critics can be so tough. You've written on criticism. You have to take criticism and scrutiny and understand that it's not personal. It's for the good of the team. When you are told that you are wrong, very wrong, you must feel nothing but respect and admiration for the one telling you so. You need to be filled not with anger or contempt, but with one solitary feeling. I'm going to do better, whatever it takes. I mean, I can't help but think of your dad when I read that, <laughs> when I read that quote. And of course, you move to New York and become the chef at 11 Madison Park, become partners with Will Guidara, build this incredible thing, basically on the hunt for like more than a decade to, to becoming the number one restaurant in the yeah. world and, you know, getting four stars in the New York Times, getting rave reviews from Frank Bruni, Pete Wells. What was that ride like for you? Obviously, there's a lot riding on getting good press. Um. I think there are these key moments where sort of the press is, is very, very important and it's really important that it, it goes your way, you know, being positive. I think that was true in San Francisco when I first started and I definitely had some support there. I think early on it's probably more important than, than later on. Mm -hmm. Well, on that front, Moira Hodgson wrote this great yeah. review in the New York Observer where she said that your restaurant needed to be more like Miles Davis. And in fact, that led to you deeply investigating the life and work of Miles, basically framing the life yeah. of your kitchen yeah. around Miles, which is, which is sort of wild that a, a critic can have such a profound impact internally at the kitchen. I think that's a great uh, example of just taking a, a review and sort of dissecting it and see if there's something in there that could be helpful, mm. that could sort of be a seed for something big to grow. And, and when she said there needs to be Miles Davis, we took it to heart and really researched Miles. And we realized 
what an incredible artist mm. and we kind of knew but we didn't really know um why was he so incredible and his sort of approach to creating became kind of the dna of our restaurant sort of that endless reinvention you know mm. like when he did the album bitches brew and he started adding electronic instruments to jazz that was a very pivotal moment and and in the beginning the critics didn't even know what to do with it and criticized it harshly uh but miles just kept you know turning his back to the audience and played with his people and and you know just kept doing what he believed in and sort of miles also as a new york artist it just Moira Hodgson, I don't think, had an idea even how good of a example she made, but it was the perfect one for us. Mm. And uh, Miles is a huge inspiration. And uh, of course, paved the way toward hip hop and so much of contemporary music. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with bad press? And I want to ask this in the context of the elephant in the room of the the really, really just mean review that Pete Wells wrote a month ago where he talks about how none of the ingredients taste quite like themselves fair but that's kind of the point if I were Pete Wells what would you say to me right now um (laughs) 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 well what I believe is that if you do something truly groundbreaking, it's going to be met with resistance. I think this is the most disruptive thing that we've done to date. And um, if it wouldn't be met with resistance, then I would feel we wouldn't be really pushing anything. And so we are very prepared for these kind of you know, uh, obstacles that gonna come our way. I didn't think the review was very, um, I I love to get criticism and I love to learn from it. Um, I didn't really learn much from that review, which I feel like I was a little bit disappointed in. And I also felt that um, he actually didn't capture the full story, which I also was disappointed in. I did learn that Pete Wells knows what lemon pledge tastes like. Yeah, <laughs> I actually don't still not know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that's amazing about the reinvention that you're doing and, and the work that you're doing around food systems and thinking about food scarcity and food insecurity is that you're really connecting the notion of a restaurant to the farm, to the community, and to the city. It's not just about one room where people come eat. It's about a collective. Could you talk about how you sort of have ambitions outside of the restaurant walls, what you did with this food truck during the pandemic, what you're working on with Rethink, Tell me about this work and, and how, how it all kind of fits into a sort of ecosystem idea. Well, I'm grateful that the pandemic happened 
for that reason, obviously devastating for many others, but it gave me sort of a higher purpose. And um, I was able to get to know New York in a whole new way by doing this work, going into these neighborhoods and trying to figure out what the needs are. The most obvious thing is to cook meals for people in need. But I think I'm interested to go even deeper as we're cooking the meals for people, we're realizing, okay, there are these amazing humans who maybe eventually could work in our kitchens or maybe we can be helpful in, in, in getting more healthier foods into these neighborhoods. I mean, it is just shocking to see some of the neighborhoods, how they're just completely underserved and it is like impossible to buy fresh vegetables. Yeah, a food desert. It's not just a phrase. It, it, it's is, real. it is literal. Now I made the commitment that it's sort of like 11 Madison Park is sort of like this circular ecosystem where every diner pays five meals forward for someone in need. So we do 100 guests a night and we give away 500 meals for free every single day. Um, we used to go to you know, the Bronx. And we realized that we wanted to make a bigger impact in one place. And where our commissary kitchen is, it happens to be right next to the Queensbridge housing project. And so we thought about why aren't we just going there? First of all, we don't need to travel very far and we just go there every day so we can really uh, make an impact. We've been there now for like six months. I mean, there's 500 people that line up every day and we give out the meals and uh, we're starting to get to know the community and they're starting to build trust. We listen what kind of food they want, what kind of allergies they have. And it's been, it's been just so mm. incredible uh, to do this work. What's true is that we need to just listen because we come into these neighborhoods, we think that we know what's needed and we really don't. And so I think having the food truck there every day has been really amazing um, because it's sort of an antenna into the community. And if we listen every day, we will eventually find out exactly what is the right thing to do. But we're super committed. Uh, Queensbridge is the largest housing project in America. Um, it is unacceptable, the conditions. For example, you know, if something breaks in your house, uh, your water doesn't work, or it takes one year for someone to come. Elevators don't stop on every floor. They only stop on every other floor. That's how they are designed. In some buildings, the elevators don't even work at all. I mean, it's just unacceptable what's happening and it has to change and we can change it. This is a 15 minute drive from Manhattan. You're literally there in 15 minutes. Yeah. And it's overlooking the East River and looking at the Upper East Side, uh, one of the most expensive areas in New York. Mm. I think it's interesting to almost imagine, you know, 11 Madison Park might geographically be located next to Madison Square Park, but it's kind of now a little bit over the, the East River or something, <laughs> like sort of bridging worlds and, and bridging communities. 
I think food is so magical and it touches everyone. It can touch everyone. We all need it. We all eat food every day. And um, to think about, to use it as, as a performance, as an art form, which is also needed and the world does need beauty. And I'm proud of creating beauty and magical moments in that way. Um, but then also to use that platform to um, address other things and, and make other people be able to appreciate it. Sometimes someone comes up to me uh, when they line up on the food truck and they get a meal and they say, hey, this was one of the best things I've ever eaten. That touches me more than if this happens in the restaurant, at the dining room. Um, it touches me both, but in a way uh, to to do both is 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 incredible. As an organization, I'm really not interested in in growing an empire. I really want to focus on New York City, on Eleven Madison Park, on the work in Queensbridge. And today, some of my days are in the morning. I'm in the community in Queensbridge, and we're cooking these meals. We're giving out these meals, and a few hours later, I get to go to Eleven Madison Park and you know, performing this, uh, these meals, this art form. Um, for me, I, I feel uh, more full than I have probably ever mm. in my professional career. Do you think when you were a young chef in Switzerland, you would have ever imagined what you could have achieved, where you are now, and particularly the notion almost uh, of you as a chef activist, which is a newer development, I would say. No, of course not. I mean, I never thought, you know, even like three Michelin stars, that seemed like a dream too big to dream. Like you were like scared to have that dream. It seemed impossible to achieve. And um, I'm just beyond blessed and, and grateful and humbled um, by the things that have come my way, you know, and this is a team sport. It takes an army to do what we do. And I'm blessed to work with some of the most creative and talented people around me. And now we're on this journey to, uh, you know, hopefully to be able to change the world a little bit. And uh, that is actually, I think, our most meaningful work that's still uh, yet to come. And how great is that after being in this career for already 30 years? Daniel, thank you so much for coming in. It was, it was great to have you here today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Always so nice to see you and to talk to you. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcast, At a Distance, by heading to atadistancepodcast.com. You can now find all of our projects in one place on our website, slowdown.tv. Our theme music was composed by Billy Martin. This episode was produced by Tiffany Zhao, Emily Jang, Mike Lala, and Pat McCusker. <laughs>